Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific, the world leader in serving science. We provide complete workflows from cryo-electron microscopic structural determination of macromolecular complexes in native state to 3D reconstruction of tissues and cells. Our solutions help unlock mysteries of underlying protein function and cellular process, bridging the gap between basic science and translational therapeutics. Today's presentation is titled Cryo-Electron Tomography for Cell Biology and is being presented by Dr. Ben Engel from the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry, the Research Department of Molecular Structural Biology. Ben received his BS from UC Berkeley and PhD from UC San Francisco. His group at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry applies in situ cryo-electron tomography, or cryo-ET, to a wide variety of cellular questions to understand the relationship between the form of the organelle and the function of its resident macromolecules. By imaging the macromolecules within their native cellular environment and through a combination of nanometer precision localization and high-resolution structural analysis, they aim to chart the molecular landscapes of organelles. His studies have been featured in journals including Cell, Nature, Science, PNAS, and eLife. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Ben at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash cryoelectrontomographywebinar. That's bit.ly slash cryo-electron tomography webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Ben, for the presentation. Hello, my name is Ben Engel. I'm a group leader at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry. And today I'm gonna to talk about how we use cryo-electron tomography to explore native molecular landscapes inside cells. I'll begin this talk by providing an overview of the techniques and instrumentation that make cellular tomography possible. And then we'll walk through several examples from my group of how we use this technique to gain exciting new insights into cell biology. So this is the complete workflow for doing cryo-electron tomography in situ or within cells. First, of course, you need cells. They could be cells grown in suspension, such as the algae cells you see here, or they could be cells grown adherent cells on a grid, such as mammalian cells. The first step is to vitrify these cells by plunging them into liquid ethane. You can do this with a manual plunger or the VitroBot from FBI or the Leica plunger. The next comes an optional step of correlative microscopy where you may want to localize a feature of interest using fluorescence microscopy. For that, you can use the CoreSight from FBI or the Leica correlative system. Next, a very important step of thinning your sample to electron transparency. For that, we use the Aquio system from FBI, but you can also load, use a Leica stage and try a transfer system and put that into a a fib from a variety of different vendors, or the quorum transfer system also works. Finally, you get to take uh, tomograms using, we use Titan Creos, and otherwise you can use a Joel cryoarm, but you want to have a 300 kV microscope uh, to do this work. And finally, not to be neglected, is the data analysis, such as segmentation, subtomogram averaging, which I won't go into great detail in this talk. So let's start by talking about cryoelectron tomography. In this approach, we take the sample and we plunge it in liquid ethane or ethane propane to preserve it in a vitreous, non-crystalline ice. We take the sample and we put it into the transmission electron microscope and we acquire what's called a tilt series. Where we move the sample from negative, generally negative 60 degrees to positive 60 degrees in two or three degree tilt increments. And we're taking images of the same object and from multiple perspectives. 
as you can see here. The next step is we line all these images up in the computer um, using either fiducial markers or image-based patch tracking. And then we do a procedure called back projection, where we take these two-dimensional images and we make them into a three-dimensional volume. This three-dimensional volume is called a tomogram. And here you're going to see we're going to section through this tomogram uh, in Z. Here we go right now. And this is through, I think, a herpes virus. And you can see all the structures there. Then what we can do is with this three-dimensional volume, we can do things like segmentation. Or if you have the same structure over and over again, you can line them up the computer and actually generate a molecular resolution average. And you're going to see several of those in this presentation. Of course, we want to do tomography within cells. And most cells are way too thick to be imaged. Uh, in the TEM, they would just look like a black blob. So we use a FIB-SAM dual beam instrument to mill away most of the cellular material, leaving what we call a lamella, which is a thin electron transparent window into the cellular interior where we can then do our tomography. So let's take a look at how to mill one of these lamellas. Here we have a quantifoil cryolium grid with chlamydomonas cells, little green algae cells frozen on it. The grid has been clipped into an autogrid support ring that has been modified, you can see on the bottom, has been cut out to provide access for the focus ion beam to milling at a low angle. Now we're going to zoom in using the SEM and find the cell that we want to mill. The, the cell should be located in the middle of a mesh away from the grid bars. Now we're going to look with the focus ion beam and we can draw patterning boxes of any shape we like. Uh, here just boxes on both sides. I'm going to mill away the material with a gallium ion beam, first with a rough cut to get rid of the carbon support. Uh, and then we can see it from the SEM, see the material that's been moved, removed here. And then sequentially, we're going to remove material from the top and the bottom of the cell uh, with lower and lower currents so as to not damage the material. The cells have been coated by a layer of organometallic platinum before the milling began. This platinum coating protects the front edge of the lamella, prevents curtaining artifacts, and enables us to mill quite thin uh, without losing the lamella. The target thickness at the end is only going to be about 100 nanometers, maybe 150 nanometers in thickness. Uh, so here's the final polishing step coming here. Do we get that 100 nanometers of thickness? Um, looks nice. And now what we can see is what's left, which is just a thin slab of ice freestanding on the grid. Uh, and you can do several of these in one session on the FIB. You can see you have one here, another one on the other side of this image. You can do about five of them, six of them in a day, and then load it into TM and fire your tomograms. So this is what the lamella looks like when you get it into the TEM. On the left, you can see a low magnification view with one and a half chlamydomona cells. And the yellow box is where we took the tomogram, which you can see on the right. Uh, this tomogram, I should point out, is a very early tomogram. I think I took it in about 2012. So this is before the direct detector cameras. This is an old CCD camera. But already what you can see here is all this beautiful native architecture within the cell. And something to point out here is compared to traditional uh, electron microscopy, all the contrast you see here corresponds to the native mass density of the proteins and carbohydrates and lipids within the cellular volume. And everything else I'm going to show you in this talk is going to be with the nice new direct detector cameras where we can see molecular resolution within the cells. That's about all I'm going to say about the technique of focus ion beam milling in this talk. I'm going to move on to the biological applications, but I wanted to leave you with a few resources. First, these two papers by Miroslava Schaffer, who's my collaborator in our department. She's really pushed forward new technological developments in this technique. And so these are worth a read. And the first one even has a nice protocol. Second of all, I'd encourage you to join this new FibSem Slack channel where members uh, of the community from all over the world are discussing their problems and troubleshooting together. I think it's a really great resource. All the biological examples you're going to see today were performed in this beautiful little green algae called Chlamydomonas. This algae has several properties that are really advantageous for cryo-ET. The first is that it appears to be pretty transparent to the electron beam. It has low molecular crowding, which aids in the detection and subtomogram averaging of complexes. The second is that the cells are just the right size for good cryopreservation when being plunged into liquid ethane. You get good vitreous freezing all the way through the cells. Third, they have highly organized cellular architecture that you're going to see throughout this talk, which enables you to image the same structure over and over again with reproducibility. Third, I like to call it a planimal. It's half plant, half animal. So you have the chloroplast for studying photosynthesis, but you also have structures such as the centrioles and cilia, which are found on every cell in the human body and are highly conserved here. And fourth, it is a really highly studied uh, model organism with all the genetic tools you could want to do some proper biology and perturb the system and see what happens. So let me introduce you to the cellular architecture of this planimal. 
Chlamydomonas has really textbook examples of eukaryotic organelles, and in this talk we're going to work our way from the nucleus to the ER and into the Golgi. Also half the cell is taken up by the chloroplast, and there we're going to finish our talk. Of course, like every eukaryotic cell, it also has mitochondria, and also the centrioles and cilia, which I mentioned before, but we're not going to have time for in this talk. We begin our journey into the cell here at the nuclear periphery. On the left, you can see the nucleus and the chromatin organization there. On the right, you can see the ER, which buds off, blooms off of the nuclear envelope, and all the uh, ER-associated ribosomes, which we'll come to talk to a little bit later. The holes in the nuclear envelope, those are nuclear pore complexes, we'll also talk about later. But what I want to point out right now is these little red arrows. And when you see these tiny little complexes there on the inside of the nuclear envelope inside the nucleus. When we zoom in on these complexes, as you can see on the right, what you see is the clear structure of the 26S proteasome, which is the cell's recycling can. It's where proteins go to be degraded. And you can see the three chambers of the 20S core and the 19S caps, the regulatory subunits. You can see in the middle one, the double cap example, with double cap proteasome, some are bound to the nuclear envelope, and on the right, single cap proteasome. So a lot of structural features that are directly discernible within the cellular volume. The first thing we did was to take all these proteasomes and map them into the cellular volume by template matching, subtermal ravaging, and mapping them back in. You can see them in blue here. Next, we combined all our data, so 76 tomograms of the nuclear periphery, and calculated the proteasome concentration with single molecule precision, both with the nucleus and the cytoplasm. And what we found is in both compartments, there was about 100 nanomolar concentration. However, right at the inside of the nuclear envelope, we saw these two separable peaks, a very high concentration in the micromolar range. This is the subtomogram average of all the proteasomes in our cells, and you can see here the iterative alignment steps that result in a recognizable average of the proteasome, uh, which very clearly fits the single particle structure. But what's cool is you can take this general average, and in a process called classification, you can separate the subvolumes that make up the average into multiple averages based on their structural similarity. So we can see different assembly states, such as double cap versus single cap proteasomes. We can focus in on those proteasomes and resolve different structures um, that correspond to the ground state versus the processing state. The processing state is engaged with substrate actively degrading protein. And we know these structures because of comparisons we can make to single particle uh, data. However, we can also find new things, new structures that uh, were not evident from single particle data. For example, when looking at these caps, we can see in the yellow here this extra density uh, that is bound to the proteasome. We're calling it the basket tethered class, and you'll see why a little bit later. And we also saw another class that looked like it was bound uh, to membrane to the 19S cap. So if we use a local mass to focus in our alignment on these extra densities, what we can see is that both of them, uh, both the basket tethered class and the membrane tethered class, they grow and they become more refined. And both of them, although we don't know what these protein densities are yet, there's something novel that we detected within the cell, we can already see by mapping in the single particle structure of the proteasome, that both protein densities are bound to the proteasome at RPN9. And this will actually help us in the future when we're trying to figure out what this protein is. Next, we took a cellular census of these proteasomes. We looked at their abundance of the different classes between the nucleus and the cytoplasm. And what we saw was that for the assembly states, the single cap versus double cap, we had the same ratio in both compartments. We also had the same ratio of ground state versus processing state with about 20% of the caps degrading substrate in both compartments. But what we saw is these extra densities, the basket tethered and the membrane tethered classes, they were only found within the nucleus. And when we map these different classes of proteasomes into the cellular volume, what you can immediately notice is that the basket tethered and membrane tethered proteasomes in yellow and red are localized around the nuclear pore complexes at the inner periphery of the nuclear envelope. And they make up these two peaks of high concentration that we had noticed earlier. Here we've zoomed in on three of those nuclear pore complexes from within the native cellular volume. And what you can see is the basket tethered proteasomes nicely matching the eightfold symmetry of the nuclear pore. They're the ones in yellow here. And they're evenly spaced around the nuclear pore with eight potential binding sites, although they're not always saturated. In contrast, the orange proteasomes, the membrane tethered proteasomes, are very close to the membrane, as you can see in the bottom view here, these top views but they're all around the periphery of the nuclear pore complex, and you can have more than eight there. There can be quite a few. And the proteasomes, are both the tethered classes of proteasomes, are lined up. If you look at the orientation of the proteasomes and plot a long axis along them, they're lined up 
pointing towards a nuclear pore, which means that there's something there, like this tether that's holding them in a specific orientation. The next thing we did was solve the structure of the nuclear pore complex. The reason we did this is that when you solve an average in situ, not only do you get a nice molecular resolution structure out of that, but you get the precise positions and orientations of all the particles that made up that average. So by doing that for the nuclear pore complex and for the proteasomes, we can precisely position them relative to each other. And what you can see here on the top is all the red dots are the membrane tether proteasomes. They're all around the periphery. And the basket tether proteasomes are in about 50 nanometers into the nuclear uh, volume, into the nucleoplasm, in a region that's supposed to be occupied by a filamentous structure called the nuclear basket. You can't see it in the average here because it's very flexible, and it's never been resolved in an average of the MPC. But both these populations of proteasomes within the entire data set you can see are completely separable, which is great. And then on the bottom row here, if you look at the nuclear pore complex from the nucleoplasm, and we symmetrize the binding sites, you can again see the basket tethered, Binding sites have eight potential binding sites, whereas the membrane tethered proteasomes have more than eight potential binding sites, and they are around the periphery of the nuclear pore complex around the membrane there. Now we're calling these yellow proteasomes basket tethered proteasomes, but on our average in nuclear pore complex, we didn't resolve the basket, which isn't very satisfying. However, when you look in the raw tomograms, what we saw is that we have these little filaments sticking into the nucleoplasm uh, from the nuclear pore complexes, which you can see here marked with red arrowheads. And when we segmented in those filaments uh, with the AMIRA program, what we can see is each filament, which is corresponds to a filament of the nuclear basket, uh, attaches the nuclear pore complex to a proteasome. And what I found even more satisfying is that when we map in the proteasomes along with these extra refined densities that we got with the local mass that I mentioned earlier, those extra densities that are attached to the proteasome, which you can see in green and blue, all align to make an elliptical shape, which we think is the residual of what we can resolve with the basket. And what you can see is in these two examples uh, from within the nuclear pore complex, when so you look at the shape of these, these ellipses, is that the blue one is quite circular, but off-center from the central axis of the nuclear pore, whereas the green one is, is centered on, the, on that axis, but it's compressed. So what you can see is the range of flexibility uh, for the nuclear basket. And this is the first time this has really been visualized within the native cell. So in summary, we use cryo-electron tomography to describe the tethering of proteasomes to two distinct sites in the nuclear pore complex, both at the basket and at the membrane. The question now becomes, what are these proteasomes doing and what are they degrading? And in order to figure that out, we have to make manipulations to mislocalize these proteasomes away from the, the MPC. Um, and we already have a start on that because we already know from our structural analysis that the tethers are bound to the RPN9 subunit. So that helps us search for the identity of those tethers. But already on the, based on the localization of these proteasomes, we can get some guesses as to their po possible function. One thing that we think they might be doing is performing surveillance of proteins that are going in and out to make sure that mis proteins aren't mislocalized. And in particular, the membrane tethered proteasomes may be participating in a specialized form of ER-associated ER -associated degradation that maintains the, the distinct identity of the inner nuclear envelope, um, which is continuous with the outer membrane, of the nuclear envelope, but has a very distinct protein composition. In addition, this is a very high concentration of proteasomes, so proteins may be targeted directly here to this, uh, this site uh, for degradation, so it may serve as a degradation center. We'll conclude this story by taking one more trip through this tomogram. Here we can see slicing back and forth through the cellular volume. Next, we're going to reveal the segmentations of the nuclear envelope in white and the mitochondria in red there, and all the mapped-in particles. All the proteasomes we can see in light blue, then we're going to have the single cap and double cap. You can appreciate how they're distributed everywhere. The ground state and processing state caps, you can see individual proteasomes that have both classes on them. Then we have the basket tethered and membrane tethered proteasomes. You can see that they're right by the nuclear pore complexes. Next, we can take a little tour through the cellular volume. And then we're going to fly in and take a closer look at one of these nuclear pore complexes to better appreciate how the basket tethered proteasomes match the eightfold symmetry of the nuclear pore and they're very regularly positioned, whereas the membrane tethered proteasomes are all around the periphery. And then, of course, we must fly through the nuclear pore complex. Okay, now that we've flown through the MPC, let's take a closer look at its structure, um, which we determined at higher resolution in collaboration with the group of Martin Beck. So prior to our study, the only high-resolution structures that were available were from vertebrates, and in particular humans, as you can see here on the right, which is a structure from an isolated HeLa nuclei. And what uh, the MPC structure has, it has three rings. There's an inner ring, which spans the two membranes of the nuclear envelope. 
as well as a cytoplasmic ring and a nuclear ring. The cytoplasmic ring and nuclear ring are both made up of complexes called Y-complexes, which you can see in uh, light blue and orange here. And in the human structure, what we have are 16 Y-complexes in both the cytoplasmic and nuclear rings, making an overall symmetrical architecture to nuclear pore complex. In comparison, the chlamydomonas complex was very surprising. It has, while well, the nuclear ring has 16 Y-complexes, the cytoplasmic ring only has eight. So this is the first example of an asymmetric nuclear pore complex. And it's also much more compact and really different in its architecture. And more recently, a yeast structure has come out with only eight Y-complexes in the cytoplasmic ring and eight in nuclear, and also eight in the nuclear ring. Um, so what we're getting now is an emerging picture of this modular architecture of nuclear pore, which has really evolved in different species differently throughout evolution, which raises a lot of questions about the evolution of the nuclear pore and how this, what, how this relates to its, to its function. Uh, another really surprising aspect of the, nu of the nuclear pore complex from Chlamydomonas is that if you take a look at the inner ring, it's highly dilated compared to the human structure. The diameter of the central channel in the Chlamydomonas structure is over 60 nanometers, where it's only about 40 nanometers in the human structure. And if you look at the inner ring, it's made up of eight spokes. And in the Chlamydomonas structure, these spokes have space between them. Um, these would be peripheral channels where the membrane proteins would come into and out of the nucleus. Whereas if you look at the human structure, uh, the eight spokes are packed closely together. And I don't see how membrane proteins could actually transit the nuclear pore. We think this may be a physiological difference, not an evolutionary one. Uh, because the key difference here is the Chlamydomonas structure was solved from within a native living cell, whereas the, HeLa the human structure was solved from isolated HeLa nuclei. So it's possible that the HeLa structure may have collapsed, whereas the Chlamydomonas structure is open in its active form. Um, it's also possible this is a dynamic process where the nuclear pore can actually open and close to regulate transport into and out of the nucleus. And there's studies from using AFM from frog, isolated frog nuclear envelope, and when you isolate the envelope and add steroids, what you can see is actually the central channel will open from about 40 nanometers, which is the same as the human structure, up to about 60 nanometers, which is the same as the chlamydomonas structure. So this is potentially a brand new mechanism for regulating transport, and it's one that we can only get to uh, by observing the nuclear pore complex within cells using in-situ cryo-electron tomography. All right, let's move outwards now from the nuclear envelope to the ER which, as you can see on the tomogram on the left here, in Chlamydomonas has a very intricate and elaborate architecture. And it also has a clear interface region between the ER and the Golgi, where budding events happen from the ER to the Golgi. But the goal of this study, which we did in collaboration with Stefan Pfeffer and Friedrich Forster, was to localize and solve the structure of membrane-bound ribosomes and the associated translocon complex. You can see these membrane-bound ribosomes on the right here in these clear polyribosome chains attached to the ER membrane. Stefan and Friedrich had already resolved a nice structure of the human ER-bound ribosome from isolated ER membranes doing tomography. And what they saw is underneath the ribosome in the ER membrane, there are three complexes. There's the SEC61 central translocon channel. Then you have the OST or oligosaccharide transferase complex. And then TRAP, the translocon-associated protein complex. When we generated the subtomer average of the ER-bound ribosome from Chlamydomonas, we noticed several differences from the human structure. First of all, the OST complex was substoichiometric and not always there. Second of all, the trap complex seemed to be highly reduced. And when we made a difference map and compared it to the human complex, there was two missing densities, one in the luminal side and one in the cytosolic side. And interestingly, if you look at the genome, the trap complex from humans has four proteins. It's trap alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. However, Chlamydomonas only has alpha and beta, and surprise, there are two missing densities. We were then able to leverage these evolutionary differences in trap structure to dissect the molecular architecture of the human trap complex. Mapping the difference densities from the algal translocon, which are in red here, as well as the difference densities from a, another structure from a human mutant in delta trap, we were able to position trap alpha, beta, gamma, and delta within the human structure. And what we can see is trap alpha and beta, which are much more evolutionarily conserved, are positioned directly adjacent to the sex 61 channel. So we believe they, they function uh, in helping coordinate the action of sex 61 in translocating the nascent peptide into the ER. Conversely, trap delta and gamma are away from the sex 61 complex and seem to be human more human-specific, which explains their roles in glycosylation and why mutating these results in diseases of glycosylation in humans. Now let's continue outwards from the ER to the Golgi. The Golgi takes proteins from the ER modifies them and sorts them and sends them to a variety of cellular destinations. 
The Golgi architecture in Clamming Monus is very beautiful and highly reproducible. It always has about nine stacks proceeding from the cis side, where they have these wide stacks, and then cisterna narrow in the medial side and the trans side, until they finally break down into the trans-Golgi network. The nice thing about this reproducibility is we can take multiple tomograms and combine our data from multiple cells in order to make generalizable conclusions and do a good structural analysis. Several different code proteins mediate the traffic of cargos through the secretory pathway. COP2 takes proteins from the ER and brings them to the Golgi. COP1 is mostly involved in intra-Golgi transport, and clathrin is involved in endocytosis. In collaboration with a group of John Briggs, we set out to analyze these codes. We were immediately struck by how we could directly recognize the structures of each of these three codes within the native cellular environment. For clathrin, we see the classical triscalion of the clathrin cage, which you can see in the lower image of C. COP2 had a double layer coat with a fine outer coat and a dense inner coat, which you can see in these dots around the vesicle in D. COP1 is a much more homogeneous coat, and it coated all the Golgi, both vesicles and buds. On the right, you can see three different stages of budding. So because we had so many examples of COP1, we proceeded to do subtomogram averaging of this structure. Now, John's group had been working on the structure of COP1 for some time, and they previously solved the structure using an in vitro reconstitution system where they took mouse proteins and added them to vesicles and made a coat there, and then solved the structure of what was called the triad. And the question was whether this triad is what's actually present within the cell. And we look at the native structure from inside the Chlamydomonas cell, we see a very similar structure. So this tells us that indeed this triad structure is the native structure that is present within the cell. Also, what's very interesting here is when you compare the Chlamydomonas structure with the mouse structure, it's very similar, unlike what we saw before with the nuclear pore complex or the trap complex. And what this means is that, the, is that COP1 is a highly conserved ancient structure that's conserved all the way from algae to mammals. However, we did observe one difference in the Chlamydomonas structure, and this is on the luminal side. We saw these extra bumps. And of course, the difference in the Chlamydomonas structure is this is actually from a Golgi is actively transporting cargo, whereas in the in vitro reconstitution system, there was no cargo. And these bumps are right underneath one of the two predicted cargo binding sites. So we think we've actually visualized cargo undergoing transport through the Golgi. It's interesting that the other cargo binding site doesn't appear to be occupied. We're not sure yet what the functional consequences or significance of this is. And when we look at the luminal density in the Golgi and the surrounding vesicles going from cis to medial to trans, what we saw is that in the cis and the medial, there's a darker density in the lumen that got darker and darker until it got to the trans and it already seemed to empty out there. When we then made averages of COP1 from each of these three regions of the Golgi, what we could see is that in the cis and medial regions, we could resolve clear cargo density. But by the time we got to the trans and TGN, the cargo density was completely emptied out, mirroring the empty luminal density that we saw uh, in the tomograms themselves. What we think this means is that the primary cargo for COP1 is resident Golgi proteins and enzymes that need to be recycled back to earlier compartments as cisternal maturation is occurring. And by the time you get to the trans and the TGN, there's no more cargo to take back, but COP1 is still there and it's going to come back anyways by itself. When we took these three averages of COP1 and straightened them out and just did a line scan through them, what we can see first of all is the empty luminal density of the trans average in the blue line here. Uh, but second of all, when you look at the membrane, and you can look at the two leaflets of the bilayer, you can see that when you go from cis to medial to trans, the bilayer is getting thicker and thicker. And this had been proposed to be the case to help sort the different enzymes into different compartments of the Golgi, so they can do the stepwise modifications of proteins that are trafficking through the Golgi. But it had never been shown before, and this is the first direct measurement of this thickening of the bilayer. We also work with John's group on one other coprotein called Retromer which is involved in the recycling of proteins such as transmembrane receptors from the endosome compartment. Together with a group of Brett Collins, they had solved the structure of the retromer complex, again using an in vitro reconstitution system, this time with a yeast protein. And much like the COP1 story before, the question became, is this architecture the same as what is seen within the cell? And what we were able to see is when looking within the chlamydomonas cells, we can see the beautiful arches of retromer on these tubules coming from the chlamydomonas endosomes looking exactly like the in vitro system. And when we take sub, make subtomogramma averages and filter them to the same resolution, what we see is both in vitro and in situ look quite the same. So it's the same structure in vitro and in situ, and is conserved between yeast and algae. Finally, let's dive into the chloroplast and take a quick stop here at the pyrenoid. The pyrenoid is a specialized compartment, which is just a big ball of rubisco. Rubisco is the enzyme that takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and fixes it into bioavailable starch. 
Now, Rubisco is a very lazy enzyme. It works slowly and it can easily get stuck with unproductive reactions with oxygen. So the pyranoid is a special compartment that is involved in the carbon concentrating mechanism. The tubules that transverse the pyranoid have another enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which floods this compartment with a very high local concentration of CO2, which helps Rubisco act uh, at its maximal efficiency. So together with the group of Martin Jonicus, we've been investigating the architecture of the pyranoid and how Rubisco is concentrated in this compartment. Here you see a single tomographic slice through the center of the pyranoid. And what we can see here is all the convoluted membranes of the pyranoid tubules. And as well, we can see all the little Rubisco complexes within the matrix of the pyranoid. And these complexes are only about 500 kilodaltons. They're quite small, but we can see their structures within the tomogram, and we can pull them out and make a nice subtomogram average. But the question here is not really about the structure of Rubisco. It's about how all these complexes are organized within the matrix. To address this question, we combine template matching subtomogram averaging and classification to localize all the Rubisco particles within the cellular volume. We found over 40,000 particles within this one volume. You can see them here as the center positions in white dots, which are going to become pink dots here as we reveal the volume. And then around each one of these center positions, what we did is we made a local shell that expanded outwards. And we took the radial distribution function to ask, what does the no local neighborhood look like around each one of these particles? And what is the packing like? It was previously proposed that the Rubisco and the Pyrano was packed like a crystal. But when we looked at the radial distribution function, what you can see on the right here from five different tomograms, these five different lines, is that there was a short range order. So the first neighbor right after the Rubisco particle was quite prominent, but after that, at lar lar longer distances, the order broke down. And what this actually highly resembles is not a solid, but a liquid. And so we compared uh, this packing, this local, this radial distribution function, to a very simple model of a fluid called a Leonard-Jones fluid. And what we can see is both uh, mathematically and using molecular dynamic simulations that the radial distribution function is almost exactly the same. So we think from this that we see liquid-like packing within the pyranoid. And our collaborators then use fluorescence microscopy to look at the kinetics and dynamics within the compartment and can see that indeed it is a liquid-like compartment with liquid-like mixing. In conclusion, what we found is that the pyranoid matrix is not a crystalline solid, but is in fact a phase-separated liquid, which is separated from the rest of the chloroplast stroma. But what benefit would this have for the cell? First of all, the ability to mix within the matrix would enable lower uh, abundance complexes, such as Rubisco activase, to diffuse through the matrix and act on all the different Rubisco complexes. Second of all, in data I didn't show you in this talk, but I encourage you to take a look at the paper. My collaborators found that there's another property of phase separation called a phase transition, where the pyranoid dissolves and partially dissolves during cell division, and this helps the pyranoid to be inherited to both daughter cells. Finally, on my last slide, I'd like to leave you with a dream for the future of in-situ cryo-electron tomography. This is the idea of visual proteomics. Cellular tomograms are incredibly rich with information. We are literally visualizing every macromolecule within the cellular volume. The challenge now lies in identification, structural characterization, and classification of these molecules. And while we're still a little ways away from doing all that, hopefully the examples I presented today conveyed some of the types of exciting insights that this technique can provide for cell biology. So if you look back at the example of the proteasomes tethered to the nuclear pore complexes, we were able to resolve native structures of proteasomes and NPCs. We were able to get positional information with, within the native cell with nanometer precision. We were able to get assembly states of native complexes, such as the single cap and double cap proteasomes, and conformational states with functional information, such as the processing versus ground state caps. And importantly, we get transient and labile interactions, such as the tethering of the proteasomes to the nuclear pore complexes. And these types of transient interactions wouldn't be possible by any other techniques, and such as biochemical purification. Yeah, so these types of observations, which are really only possible with in-situ cryo-electron tomography, have the potential to completely revolutionize cell biology. I'd like to thank Wolfgang Baumeister and Jürgen Plitzko for supporting me and making all this work possible, and really giving me complete freedom to explore to all the different corners of this little green algae cell. It's been an amazing experience working in the department for the last eight years. I'd also like to thank Miroslava Schaffer, who's been my constant uh, collaborator throughout all these projects, and she really is an expert in cryofocus IMB milling. I'd like to thank all the people who have worked with me over the years over the for the image analysis, and finally, I'd like to thank my collaborators, and I look forward to your questions. Thanks, Ben, for a fantastic discussion. We have a few questions from our audience now. So our first question is about the um, workflow. 
So how yeah. long does each step in the workflow take? Great, how long does it take? Uh, well, uh, freezing cells is only a couple hours, you know, and uh, you'll spend a day on the fib. Generally takes about one hour to mill each lamella, so you can get about five or six in a day. Uh, and generally what we do is we do maybe two days on the fib and then load those samples into the Titan for one day on the Titan. And each tomogram takes about an hour for acquisition as well. So hopefully you can get a day or two there and, and run them all night. So in, in the end, it's a lot of work, but uh, if everything goes well, you have a lot of data after that. So then most of the time is actually spent in analysis. Okay. And now we have a question from, um, I'm going to mispronounce your name. I'm sorry. Shui. And they're talking about in the um, mom 2016 science paper, does the MPC have the same size as what your slide shows? I'm not sure if you would know that. Yeah. You mean Julia's, Julia's, yes. uh, Muhammad's paper. Yeah. So there's not too many MPCs in that paper. Um, but it does look like uh, this in situ MPC, uh, Gila MPC has a wider channel. So that would be consistent with the idea that it's a functional difference, uh, not a species specific difference. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And then we have a question from um, Andre and they're asking, what do you think is the limiting attribute to identifying proteins within tomograms? Do you think it's size, protein density, order, so on, something else? Yes. <laughs> Can I say yes? <laughs> Uh, I mean, so one. I mean, one thing we've kind of was fairly surprising to us. There's a, we did a lot of work in in yeast in this in this department, and everyone's trying to find the proteasome. And yeast is a highly crowded environment, and it's actually been much more challenging to do identification and localization of this structure, even though it's quite large. So one one factor is definitely the crowding of the environment, mm -hmm. and you know, Chlamydomonas has the advantage that it seems to be fairly uncrowded. So in Chlamydomonas, we can get down to 500 kilodalton complexes, maybe even a little smaller. But oh, wow. also you need, uh, yeah, so the, the Rubisco is, and we now can do CDC 48 in a, in a story that we have coming out. Um, but that's kind of the limit now at the pixel size that we're working at. Of course, with tomography, um, you know, there's always a trade-off with the amount of dose you're putting on the sample and how zoomed in you want to go. So you're working with like a 3.4 angstrom pixel size. And so with that, we're about 500 kilodalton complex. Um, yeah. but. At, but as we push it further, people are, are trying to go even, even smaller. And I would say mammalian cells are somewhere in, somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. But another important factor is the copy number of the complex, because you know it's all about the statistics. Oh, yeah. And in order to do identification, we do this template matching. There's a lot of false positives. You need to sometimes you do manual sorting, but there's also a lot of automated classification steps. But if you don't have enough particles to, to do all the structural analysis, then you can't really do the the identification either. So everything we've done so far has been on fairly, you know, high copy number complexes. We've even if it's large, we've looked for things like the APC, you know, and other large complexes. But if they're not abundant, if you only expect to find one or maybe you know one in a tomogram, then it's also a major challenge. And then um, they have a follow-up question. A follow-up question: um, How many particles do you need to have to have a reliable um, subtomogram average structure yeah. in situ? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so a couple hundred will get you to something that looks recognizable, um, even a few less, depending, uh, especially with the faceplate has pluses and minuses, but you can get to an average a little quicker sometimes there. Uh, your resolution, uh, so a couple thousand is generally what we, we have. So these proteasomes that I showed earlier, uh, I think we had about 5,000 particles, and we okay. were at a resolution of about 15 angstroms. And, um, there's also another paper from our, our lab looking at neurogenerative aggregates with proteasomes, and they got a little higher resolution because they had more particles. But generally, the resolution starts to saturate when you get to about, I don't know, 10,000 particles or so, um, and you get diminishing returns there. You need to, you know, it's more about classifying out the heterogeneity or, you know, bad imaging versus good imaging, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then we have a question from Noon Lee. They're asking, have you observed any chromatin structure inside the nucleus? Is there any common structure? <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's, that's a topic that my group is not highly focused on, but uh, many groups are, including some in our department. I think this is nuclear organization and chromatin structure is something that is going to be uh, a lot of groups are going to push in situ towards. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the nucleosome is about, I think, 200 kilodaltons or so. So it's really small. Um, mm -hmm. There is a paper from Lugan and Martin Pilhofer using the Volta faceplate where they were able to get some nucleosome structures. 
The challenge, of course, is not just getting a structure, but getting really high sensitivity to not just get some of them, but to get all of them. If you want to look at organization the way we did in the pyranoid, so if you want to look at the organization of all these different nucleosomes and, and how they're arranged, you not only have to get a structure, you really have to know that you've got them all and not too many false positives or false negatives. And I think that's definitely you know, going to be a challenge. But uh, with incremental gains, you know, with a doubling of resolution, we haven't been using the K through camera. There's a couple of things that maybe can push it a little farther. Um, I think it might be possible. Uh, but from, from initial looks, it, it looks like there are regions, and you can also see in their paper, there are regions that have more nucleosomes, regions that have less, but there isn't any you know, very obvious uh, order of, of these nucleosomes. They're just kind of floating around. Okay, and then we have um, kind of oft, um, veering off from that. Do you know if there's any work that has been conducted about visualizing sialic acid using cryo-electron tomography? And this is from NUR. Uh, visualizing what? Um, sialic acid. I don't know sialic acid. Yeah. <laughs> And then we have a question from Nicole asking about um, what workshops or conferences would you recommend for beginners? Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so the most kind of uh, the one that everyone wants to go to is the 3DM Gordon conference, which is mm -hmm. kind of a, but it's, a, it's kind of a difficult conference to get into. But there's also the GRS um, that goes along with that. Uh, there's a Keystone. It depends a little bit if you want to be more on the image processing side. There's some okay. Embo workshop. There's some Embo workshops. There's a Dynamo workshop. Um, I'll be helping teach a workshop in Vienna on CryoEM, which is kind of covering more acquisition, but also a little bit. Um, but yeah, so there, there are some pretty good analytical workshops like this, like this Dynamo workshop and the Embo mm -hmm. workshops. Um, Do you have any idea of where like places like websites or something people can go to find like a list of these, or is it really just kind of Google search and oh. look? Hmm. Hey, Will. <laughs> Where can everyone find all the workshops? Like for cryo-EM. Um, is there a website? You can Google it. There's a couple of places that keep track of these things. But uh, there aren't so many. William Wan, my office mate, says that you can Google it, and there are a couple of websites <laughs> that keep track of these things. But um, yeah. Um, and there are, what, what's the computational workshop that, or workshop or conference that you went to uh, so last year? Every two years there's a computational conference. Yeah. So there is a national center that's run uh, out of Baylor College. He says, I'm transferring, there's a national center run out of Baylor conference, College, and every two years there's a computational workshop. So I mean, I actually think that getting, uh, as a beginner, getting a feeling for the computational side and what it means, you know, how image formation works and what it means to deal with the state is actually a good way to start and easier because you don't need access to instrumentation. Um, and then when you start thinking about how to acquire data, you know, you know exactly, you know, what you're going for because every question is going to have, you know, slightly different mm -hmm. parameters for, for what you want to, what you want to shoot for depending on the question. So I think that getting a feeling for, you know, what the data is actually like is, is probably a first. So building off of that, Nicole also. But there are, there are also really nice, um, building off, maybe the, you were going to say this, but there are also a couple of really good online resources for learning. Um, there's, of course, Grant Jensen's videos, and there's all this stuff, uh, this EM <laughs> University or whatever the Thermo Fisher website uh, has. So, yeah, there's some really good online resources for learning as well. Oh. I was going to talk about building off of the computational side. Nicole also asks, um, what kind of computational power or software would you suggest? Um, well, you know, we, we run, we, we have access to so tomography. A lot of the software is still running through, it's all, a lot of it's under development. It's running through CPUs instead of kind of the standard GPU. So it's mm -hmm. not, the software is not as mature as like Reliant and CryoSpark are for a single particle. Um, we use a combination of Python for our template matching and averaging. We do use rely on to finish polishing our particles. And actually, the software that I'm moving over now that I keep on, I should just get William Wan into this. This uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm using, for I'm using his sorry. software, which uh, yeah, we can have a guest guest appearance if you want. <laughs> uh, but I'm using his new software, which he's just writing now, which is called Stopgap. Um, and uh, it's really good for, for picking particles and doing averaging. He's still just now working on uh, template matching and classification, but the idea is they get the whole package. Um, and we just published a paper 
looking at the thylakoids of cyanobacteria, where we looked at, we averaged uh, phycobilisomes, which is large light harvesting antennas, and we use his, his package for the whole workflow. So he's now put that up uh, on GitHub, and uh, everyone can take a look at that. And I'm sure he's available for trouble. He's giving me thumbs up, like, yeah, I could help uh, anybody who needs help. <laughs> Uh, computationally, I mean, this this is all running through CPUs. So we uh, have a, we we run through a CPU cluster, and and generally um, jobs take you know 60, 64 nodes or thirty two nodes or whatever. And and so a lab should have access to several thousand nodes on a CPU. And more programs are going towards GPUs. Um, but uh, in subtotal averaging, it is it is kind of like a little bit take a bit here, take a bit there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are still using PEAT, which is uh, part of IMOD. But that's that's all downstream. That's for the subtomograph averaging and classification. For the reconstruction of the tomograms, uh, that I think the standard approach that almost everyone uses is is IMOD. Um, yeah, from David Mastromonity. There are some other uh, there are some other programs, but that's that's I think the consensus there. So David Mastronarde, um, who's in Colorado, uh, has done a great service to the community um, in developing Serial EM, which we use for our acquisition, and we can do it for single particle acquisition, and also uh, it's basically the, the thing that you use for tomography. And then he also has uh, the IMAP package, which we use for the reconstruction of, of, of the volumes and putting out unbin vol sub-volumes that we then use for, for averaging. So. Um, he needs everyone should support him his, his stuff is fantastic and if you get a chance to go to uh for example workshop with david i think that would be worthwhile that sounds great so kind of also talking a little bit about software wesley asks um was there any automation used during image segmentation in the cases you showed today yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um so this is I, I use the Amira program, which is also available uh, through Thermo Fisher FEI. And uh, uh, so there's a, um, we have a automated membrane-based segmentation, which is called, mm, I think, Tomo Segmem TV or something. There's, I can, people can look up uh, how to do that. I've cited in some of my papers. And this doesn't get you all the way, but it uh, picks out a lot of the membrane surfaces, which is how we get some kind of clean-looking membrane surfaces. But for areas of high curvature, quite honestly, I was sitting there and coloring it in. And I happen to like doing that, but some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way, if you have time, it's a way to take your mind off things and kind of enjoy, enjoy your, uh, your volume. So a lot of it is done manually, but there are some automated approaches that'll get you, you know, kind of halfway there. It's just the cleanup is, is, is manual. Okay. And then for mapping and particles, of course, this is automated. So that's mm -hmm. the membrane, and then the particles are based on after you've done your template matching yeah. and your subtomic averaging, you have the positions of these particles and their orientations from from the alignment. So you can just uh, make another volume and map them both back in, uh, and either directly display them either in Chimera or uh, make a volume that you can display with an ISO surface in Amira, which is how most of those were done were ISO surfaces in, in Amira. Okay. And then um, Nicole asks, uh, what techniques can you use for smaller protein vis visualization? For example, she looks at a receptor that's about 50 kilodaltons, and it's mm -hmm. widely expressed. Is that something that's feasible? Is it on a membrane? Um, yeah, I guess so. I would imagine. Probably. So uh, there is a, there's another fun little tool. Um, and I give a shout out now to Dmitry Tegonov. Uh, who works in Gotingen right now with Patrick Kramer, and he made this program called, he calls it Membranorama, and it can generate <laughs> a membranogram. And um, actually, in this paper that we have out right now uh, on the cyanobacterial thylakoids, this kind of is the first membranogram, but we're hoping to get out another paper soon looking at the chlamydomonas thylakoids, where we can really show the distribution of proteins that are sticking out of the membrane. So, what this program does is if you make a nice smooth segmentation using this automated membrane segmentation, um, and I should probably put a little kind of work, workflow on there, how to get a nice smooth membrane leading into this program. But if you then export that segmentation and load up into the membranogram software, uh, your tomographic volume um, and, and the segmentation, the membranogram software will basically display densities that are sticking out of the membrane. So you can think of it kind of like an AFN. You can, uh, you can see the topology of the membrane, okay. which is really great for seeing any sort of membrane proteins that are sticking out of the membrane. You can't, it doesn't work for, you know, complete membrane proteins that are only embedded in the membrane. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to visualize because the membrane density itself is very strong. 
Um, and so it's hard to dis discriminate the membrane from the protein. But if there's something sticking out of the membrane, in the case of you know, the photosynthetic membranes, we have these large photosystem two complexes, which are big dimers, and we can clearly see them sticking out. And so it's nice you can kind of map the organization of these proteins. And you can also, using the membrane aroma, you can click the positions of these uh, proteins and, and get an average. Now, granted, for 50 kilodalton protein, this is really pushing it, because even those densities were um, several hundred kilodaltons that are sticking out of the membrane, mm -hmm. and we use the phase plate to better resolve them. But, so, but if it's highly abundant, I guess with this software and you knew the membrane surface, you'd probably see lots of little dots sticking off the membrane. So maybe it's possible. Okay. But 50, 50 is a little small, but yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah, and she does say that it's in the um, in the membrane. So, mm -hmm. um, I think it might be possible, but it depends on how much is sticking out of the membrane. That's really the question. So I feel like this might be that's a bit. A so that's there's a that. Sorry, there's a question that goes along with receptors from Jag Deep, and they're asking um, if you could look at the interaction of receptor ligands, uh, receptors and their ligands um, on the cell membrane using this technology. But I'm guessing okay. that probably. Well, you mean like on small what's a ligand? What's a ligand? Yeah, if you're talking about like a, a small molecule, then that that's beyond uh, the resolution we currently mm -hmm. have with with tomography. Um, but you can certainly see interactions, uh, larger larger scale interactions, say like the cytoskeleton with the membrane or something like that. Um, or if there were two membranes that were mm -hmm. being held together and you were like there was some sort of zippering, okay. like you know adherens or something like that, um, you can definitely see linker proteins between membranes. Mm -hmm. uh, there looking at this already some papers published on and others under review I think on ER plasma membrane connections and you can see the little linkers there we've actually published a paper on the Golgi that I didn't cover in the talk it's an older one in PNAS where we can see within the cisterna all these linker these arrays of linker proteins between the membranes so you can see stuff but if it's about just you know you have a, a receptor and you're you know does it does it bind the small uh, you know molecule or not that that we cannot tell Unless it's a very large protein and it undergoes a conformational change upon binding, and you can do subtomography averaging, maybe. Okay. The discrimination of populations, but it sounds difficult. Hey, and you mentioned the visualizing of the thylakoid membrane. Um, Mohammed wanted to know if you could use um, cryo-electron tomography to visualize the outer mitochondrial membrane protein in human cell lines, like HeLa cell lines. Sure, absolutely. And uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, there's already tomograms out there from from HeLa cells and okay. their mitochondria, and uh, then you know you can do a couple different approaches. You can of course look for the larger complexes like uh, like Tim Tom, for example, mm -hmm. that transports proteins in and out. Um, but you could also use this mem membranogram approach to kind of map the topology of what's poking out of it. The, the, the challenge with the membranograms is you just see little densities. Okay. Um, the, the nice thing about the thylakoids is that in certain regions of the thylakoids in particular, we just, we really know what all the big things that are sticking on the membranes are. So in the luminal spaces, it's it's really just photosystem two and cytochrome B6F, and one's a big dimer and one's a small dimer. So it's easy to kind of assign identities, but it's a very heterogeneous membrane with lots of different things going on that might be challenging to assign identities to everything, which is actually one of the big questions that I often get is, you know, how are you gonna do visual proteomics? How are you gonna assign identities to everything? And that's, uh, that's a remaining challenge. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Oh, um, so to go back to Jagdeep's question about the interaction of the receptor with its ligand, um, he's, or they say they're asking um, mainly on the plasma membrane and the receptor is large on the ligands, about 100 kilodaltons. Okay. Um, if it's abundant, uh, you should be able to look, you should be able to see these receptors. So you should be able to see the receptors and I guess you could do, um, that's that's right kind of in the range where you might be able to do a subsum, because you have the membrane to kind of uh, localize these proteins and give you initial uh, orientation, so mm -hmm. initial Euler angles for the averaging, you may be able to, and there's a, if there's a lot of them on the surface, then you may be able to pick all the particles and discriminate uh, two different averages. It might be a little, tr yeah, I mean, I'd, you could try. It's, it's again, it depends on the, but in this question, it really depends on how abundant these, these things are. I mean, the plasma membrane is full of so much, so many different right. densities. It's a more reduced system, say an in vitro system, which is not really the point. We want to talk about going in the cell. Well, let's just say, for example, you had an in vitro system uh, with, you know, liposomes and you had tons of this protein and you added receptor and you want to discriminate the difference. I think on a technical level, it's probably possible. 
But when you're dealing with the heterogeneity of you know a mammalian plasma membrane, it sounds, of course, much more challenging. Yeah, there's a lot more stuff going on in there. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. the the it'll be hard to know what you know that you're looking at for the complex that you found the complex that you want because it's still kind of small. Yeah. So, in addition to collecting um, more tomograms to increase particle number, what other strategies um, do you prefer to use to get a better average structure? Like, is there certain sample um, preparations that you use, or is it more on the computational well, processing of the data? I mean, image, image analysis is also, I mean, uh, the data acquisition is also important. So, mm -hmm. all, all the way back to the beginning. So, if you want to get high resolution, you need to mill your, first of all, pick the right cell. Right. right? That's not part of it, sure. Um, then you've got a mill very thin, and the resolution that you can get is directly proportional, and the amount of signal noise you have directly proportional to the thickness of the sample, and that's been known. You know, that's also, that's also true for single particles. People want as thin as ice as possible, right? As mm -hmm. the particle is happy, um, so you need to make it thin. And then uh, data acquisition is also very important. So there's this dose symmetric scheme, which uh, we call the Hagen scheme, named after Vim Hagen at EMBL. And this was, uh, you know, invented by him and used by uh, John Briggs for this high-resolution HIV structure. And basically, this means that your initial dose, which is going to have all the highest-resolution information before you've damaged the sample, because of course you're destroying the sample as you're imaging. Mm -hmm. um, your initial dose is going to be on those low tilts where you can really visualize all the high-resolution information, and then um, you go a little bit to the plus and a little bit to the minus, and you basically kind of work your way both the plus and minus in the tilt scheme um, uniformly. And then later on, you can do dose weighting. So uh, as you image, you're destroying the sample, and what starts to go away first is the high-resolution information. So you can uh, down-filter, low-pass filter, low -pass filter um, the, the, la the later tilts, these high tilts, which you still need for aligning the tomogram and for low-resolution kind of information on your particles, but um, you can just preserve, but you can get rid of the noise that you have there in the high-resolution range, because at that point, after all that dose, it's going to be noisy. So you can get rid of that, um, and that's called dose weighting. So you can combine uh, this Hagen scheme uh, approach, which is a little bit slower acquisition, but if you really want to push high resolution, I highly recommend it. Um, and then combine that with dose filtering, and that will get you a long way. Um, I'm going to say something else, but that's, yeah. That, that's, oh, yeah, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Well, I think we're about out of time, so that brings us to the end of the webinar. Okay. Thank you again, Ben, for... Thank you, everyone, for listening. I saw that we had, like, about 100 attendees, and we're still at 80, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you gave a great presentation. <laughs> and special shout-out to Will for being um, a good sport for pinch-hitting sometimes. Yeah, thanks, Will. Everyone check out StopGab. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and Will, need, Will, need, Will needs more people to test it and give him feedback. So I think. Um, so if you want to, if you want to drop that link in chat, I'll send it out to everybody in just a moment. Oh, the stopgap link. That's yes. a good idea. Let's do that. We need a GitHub link for stopgap. Yeah. Let's find it. Well, we can just Google it, can't we? <laughs> yeah. So, and okay. I also want to thank everybody for a great discussion and. Thanks also to our sponsor, Thermo Fisher Scientific. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 to 48 hours. And there you can see the other webinars we have lined up for yeah, you on Bitesizebio. You can type it here. Okay, perfect. So we're about to send out the um, GitHub link to everybody. Will is sending his GitHub for Stopgap. Yes. And I'm sure this I'm sure this program's complete. It only went online like a week ago, but so it's it's still uh, under development. But it's so far it's it's worked well for us. So Perfect. please send all your feedback. So you guys yeah. are on, so we're on the cutting edge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. So here we're going to send it out to everybody. So please go and visit the StopHub Gap. Or the stop gap, stop gap, the stop gap on on GitHub. So yeah. until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Thermo Fisher Scientific and Bite Size Bio. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com/webinars.
Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 